Section 31 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 2, Part 5. He shut himself up in his room. His shutters were closed all day, so as not to see the windows of the house opposite. He avoided the Fogels. They were odious to his sight. He had nothing to reproach them with. They were too honest, and too pious, not to have thrust back their feelings in the face of death. They knew Christophe's grief and respected it. Whatever they might think of it, they never uttered Sabina's name in his presence. But they had been her enemies when she was alive. That was enough to make him their enemy, now that she was dead. Besides, they had not altered their noisy habits, and in spite of the sincere though passing pity that they had felt, it was obvious that at bottom they were untouched by the misfortune. It was too natural. Perhaps even they were secretly relieved by it. Christophe imagined so, at least. Now that the Fogel's intentions with regard to himself were made plain, he exaggerated them in his own mind. In reality, they attached little importance to him. He set too great store by himself. But he had no doubt that the death of Sabine, by removing the greatest obstacle in the way of his landlord's plans, did seem to them to leave the field clear for Rosa. So he detested her that they, the Fogels, Louisa, and even Rosa, should have tacitly disposed of him, without consulting him, was enough in any case to make him lose all affection for the person whom he was destined to love. He shied whenever he thought an attempt was made upon his umbrageous sense of liberty. But now it was not only a question of himself— the rights which these others had assumed over him did not only infringe upon his own rights, but upon those of the dead woman to whom his heart was given. So he defended them doggedly, although no one was for attacking them. He suspected Rosa's goodness. She suffered in seeing him suffer, and would often come and knock at his door to console him and talk to him about the other. He did not drive her away. He needed to talk of Sabine with someone who had known her. He wanted to know the smallest of what had happened during her illness. But he was not grateful to Rosa. He attributed ulterior motives to her. Was it not plain that her family, even Amalia, permitted these visits and long colloquies which she would never have allowed if they had not fallen in with her wishes? Was not Rosa in league with her family? He could not believe that her pity was absolutely sincere and free of personal thoughts. And, no doubt, it was not. Rosa pitied Christophe with all her heart. She tried hard to see Sabine through Christophe's eyes, and through him to love her. She was angry with herself for all the unkind feelings that she had ever had towards her, and asked her pardon in her prayers at night. But could she forget that she was alive, that she was seeing Christophe every moment of the day, that she loved him, that she was no longer afraid of the other, 
that the other was gone, that her memory would also fade away in its turn, that she was left alone, that one day, perhaps, in the midst of her sorrow, and the sorrow of her friend more hers than her own, could she repress a glad impulse, an unreasoning hope? For that, too, she was angry with herself. It was only a flash. It was enough. He saw it. He threw her a glance which froze her heart. She read in it hateful thoughts. He hated her for being alive while the other was dead. The miller brought his cart for Sabine's little furniture. Coming back from a lesson, Christophe saw heaped up before the door in the street the bed, the cupboard, the mattress, the linen, all that she had possessed, all that was left of her. It was a dreadful sight to him. He rushed past it. In the doorway he bumped into Berthold, who stopped him. "'Ah, my dear sir,' he said, shaking his hand effusively. "'Ah, who would have thought it when we were together? How happy we were! And yet it was because of that day, because of that cursed row on the water, that she fell ill. Oh, well, it is no use complaining. She is dead. It will be our turn next. That is life. And how are you?' "'I am very well, thank God.' He was red in the face, sweating, and smelled of wine. The idea that he was her brother, that he had rights in her memory, hurt Christophe. It offended him to hear this man talking of his beloved. The miller, on the contrary, was glad to find a friend with whom he could talk of Sabine. He did not understand Christophe's coldness. He had no idea of all the sorrow that his presence— the sudden calling to mind of the day at his farm, the happy memories that he recalled so blunderingly, the poor relics of Sabine, heaped upon the ground, which he kicked as he talked, set stirring in Christophe's soul. He made some excuse for stopping Berthold's tongue. He went up the steps, but the other clung to him, stopped him, and went on with his harangue. At last, when the miller took to telling him of Sabine's illness— with that strange pleasure which certain people, and especially the common people, take in talking of illness, with a plethora of painful details, Christophe could bear it no longer. He took a tight hold of himself so as not to cry out in his sorrow. He cut him short. Pardon, he said curtly and icily. I must leave you. He left him without another word. His insensibility revolted the miller. He had guessed the secret affection of his sister and Christophe, and that Christophe should now show such indifference seemed monstrous to him. He thought he had no heart. Christophe had fled to his room. He was choking. Until the removal was over he never left his room. He vowed that he would never look out of the window. But he could not help doing so, and hiding in a corner behind the curtain, he followed the departure of the goods and chattels of the beloved eagerly and with profound sorrow. When he saw them disappearing forever, he all but ran down to the street to cry, No, no, leave them to me, do not take them from me. He longed to beg at least for some little thing, only one little thing, so that she should not be altogether taken from him. But how could he ask such a thing of the miller? It was nothing to him. She herself had not known his love. How dared he then reveal it to another? And besides, if he had tried to say a word, he would have burst out crying, No, 
No, he had to say nothing, to watch all go, without being able, without daring to save one fragment from the wreck. And when it was all over, when the house was empty, when the yard gate was closed after the miller, when the wheels of his cart moved on, shaking the windows, when they were out of hearing, he threw himself on the floor. Not a tear left in him, not a thought of suffering, of struggling, frozen, and like one dead. There was a knock at the door. He did not move. Another knock. He had forgotten to lock the door. Rosa came in. She cried out on seeing him stretched on the floor and stopped in terror. He raised his head angrily. What? What do you want? Leave me. She did not go. She stayed, hesitating, leaning against the floor, and said again, Christophe. He got up in silence. He was ashamed of having been seen so. He dusted himself with his hand and asked harshly, Well, what do you want? Rosa said shyly, Forgive me, Christophe. I came in. I was bringing you. He saw that she had something in her hand. See, she said, holding it out to him. I asked Bertolt to give me a little token of her. I thought you would like it. It was a little silver mirror, the pocket mirror, in which she used to look at herself for hours, not so much from coquetry as from want of occupation. Christophe took it, took also the hand which held it. Oh, Rosa, he said. He was filled with her kindness and the knowledge of his own injustice. On a passionate impulse, he knelt to her and kissed her hand. Forgive, forgive, he said. Rosa did not understand at first. Then she understood only too well. She blushed, she trembled, she began to weep. She understood that he meant, Forgive me if I am unjust. Forgive me if I do not love you. Forgive me if I cannot, if I cannot love you, if I can never love you. She did not withdraw her hand from him. She knew that it was not herself that he was kissing. And with his cheek against Rosa's hand, he wept hot tears, knowing that she was reading through him. There was sorrow and bitterness in being unable to love her and making her suffer. They stayed so, both weeping in the dim light of the room. At last she withdrew her hand. He went on murmuring, Forgive. She laid her hand gently on his hand. He rose to his feet. They kissed in silence. They felt on their lips the bitter savor of their tears. We shall always be friends, he said softly. She bowed her head and left him too sad to speak. They thought that the world is ill-made. The lover is unloved. The beloved does not love. The lover who is loved is sooner or later torn from his love. There is suffering. There is the bringing of suffering. And the most wretched is not always the one who suffers. Once more Christophe took to avoiding the house. He could not bear it. He could not bear to see the curtainless windows, the empty rooms. A worse sorrow awaited him. Old Euler lost no time in reletting the ground floor. One day Christophe saw strange faces in Sabine's room. New lives blotted out the traces of the life that was gone. It became impossible for him to stay in his rooms. 
he passed whole days outside, not coming back until nightfall, when it was too dark to see anything. Once more he took to making expeditions in the country. Irresistibly he was drawn to Berthold's farm. But he never went in, dared not go near it, wandered about it at a distance. He discovered a place on a hill from which he could see the house, the plain, the river. It was thither that his steps usually turned. From thence he could follow with his eyes the meanderings of the water down to the willow clump under which he had seen the shadow of death pass across Sabine's face. From thence he could pick out the two windows of the rooms in which they had waited, side by side, so near, so far, separated by a door, the door to eternity. From thence he could survey the cemetery. He had never been able to bring himself to enter it. From childhood he had had a horror of those fields of decay and corruption, and refused to think of those whom he loved in connection with them. But from a distance, and seen from above, the little graveyard never looked grim. It was calm, it slept with the sun. Sleep! She loved to sleep. Nothing would disturb her there. The crowing cocks answered each other across the plains. From the homestead rose the roaring of the mill, the clucking of the poultry-yard, the cries of children playing. He could make out Sabine's little girl. He could see her running. He could mark her laughter. Once he lay in wait for her near the gate of the farmyard, in a turn of the sunk road made by the walls. He seized her as she passed and kissed her. The child was afraid and began to cry. She had almost forgotten him already. He asked her, "'Are you happy here?' "'Yes, it is fun.' "'You don't want to come back?' "'No.' He let her go. The child's indifference plunged him in sorrow. Poor Sabine! And yet it was she, something of her, so little. The child was hardly at all like her mother, had lived in her, but was not she. In that mysterious passage through her being the child had hardly retained more than the faintest perfume of the creature who was gone. Inflections of her voice, a pursing of the lips, a trick of bending the head. The rest of her was another being altogether, and that being, mingled with the being of Sabine, was repulsive to Christophe, though he never admitted it to himself. It was only in himself that Christophe could find the image of Sabine. It followed him everywhere, hovering above him, but he only felt himself really to be with her when he was alone. Nowhere was she nearer to him than in this refuge, on the hill, far from strange eyes, in the midst of the country that was so full of the memory of her. He would go miles to it climbing at a run, his heart beating as though he were going to a meeting with her, and so it was indeed. When he reached it, he would lie on the ground, the same earth in which her body was laid. He would close his eyes, and she would come to him. He could not see her face. He could not hear her voice. He had no need. She entered into him, held him. He possessed her utterly. In this state of passionate hallucination, he would lose the power of thought. He would be unconscious of what was happening. He was unconscious of everything, save that he was with her. 
That state of things did not last long. To tell the truth, he was only once altogether sincere. From the day following, his will had its share in the proceedings, and from that time on, Christophe tried in vain to bring it back to life. It was only then that he thought of evoking in himself the face and form of Sabine. Until then, he had never thought of it. He succeeded spasmodically, and he was fired by it. But it was only at the cost of hours of waiting and of darkness. Poor Sabine, he would think. They have all forgotten you. There is only I who love you, who keep your memory alive forever. Oh, my treasure, my precious, I have you, I hold you, I will never let you go. He spoke these words, because already she was escaping him. She was slipping from his thoughts like water through his fingers. He would return again and again, faithful to the tryst. He wished to think of her, and he would close his eyes. But after half an hour, or an hour, or sometimes two hours, he would begin to see that he had been thinking of nothing. The sounds of the valley, the roar of the wind, the little bells of the two goats browsing on the hill, the noise of the wind in the little slender trees under which he lay, were sucked up by his thoughts, soft and porous like a sponge. He was angry with his thoughts. They tried to obey him and to fix the vanished image to which he was striving to attach his life. But his thoughts fell back weary and chastened, and once more with a sigh of comfort abandoned themselves to the listless stream of sensations. He shook off his torpor. He strode through the country hither and thither, seeking Sabine. He sought her in the mirror that once had held her smile. He sought her by the river-bank where her hands had dipped in the water. But the mirror and the water gave him only the reflection of himself, the excitement of walking, the fresh air, the beating of his own healthy blood awoke music in him once more. He wished to find change. Oh, Sabine, he sighed. He dedicated his songs to her. He strove to call her to life in his music, his love, and his sorrow. In vain. Love and sorrow came to life surely, but poor Sabine had no share in them. Love and sorrow looked towards the future, not towards the past. Christophe was powerless against his youth. The sap of life swelled up again in him with new vigor. His grief, his regrets, his chaste and ardent love, his baffled desires heightened the fever that was in him. In spite of his sorrow, his heart beat in lively, sturdy rhythm. Wild songs leaped forth in mad, intoxicated strains. Everything in him, hymned life and even sadness, took on a festival shape. Christophe was too frank to persist in self-deception, and he despised himself. But life swept him headlong, and in his sadness, with death in his heart and life in all his limbs, he abandoned himself to the forces newborn in him, to the absurd, delicious joy of living which grief pity, despair, the aching wound of an irreparable loss, all the torment of death, can only sharpen and kindle into being in the strong 
as they rowel their sides with furious spur. And Christoph knew that in himself, in the secret hidden depths of his soul, he had an inaccessible and inviolable sanctuary where lay the shadow of Sabine, that the flood of life could not bear away. Each of us bears in his soul, as it were, a little graveyard of those whom he has loved. They sleep there, through the years, untroubled. But a day cometh, this we know, when the graves shall reopen. The dead issue from the tomb and smile with their pale lips, loving always, on the beloved and the lover in whose breast their memory dwells, like the child sleeping in the mother's womb. End of section 31